This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 40. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jeff Graham, author of the book, Dear Chairman. In episode 22 with Adam Epstein, we discussed at length the importance of corporate governance, not just for microcap boardrooms, but for all public companies. Since that conversation, I wanted to learn more about corporate governance and what should be done in the event that C-suite management and boards of directors aren't acting in the best interest of shareholders. I discovered the best way for me to understand this topic was anecdotally. I came across Dear Chairman by Jeff Graham on a reading list, and I'm glad I did because it really helped me understand the rise of shareholder activism and the effect it's had on corporate governance. In this interview, you will learn about his background, his approach to investing, and we discuss his book, Dear Chairman. Reading lists are great resources as I have found, and I highly recommend adding Jeff's book to your list. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 40 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Jeff Graham. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, everybody. Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. I'd like to take this moment to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th, 2017 at none other than the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you'll get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with company management of undiscovered and well-known microcap companies. There are a lot of surprises in store and you're not going to want to miss it. So join us at the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and register now to reserve your spot. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Jeff Graham on the program. He is the author of the book, Dear Chairman. Jeff, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So uh, to start off, as we do with uh, the podcast, um, what is your background and uh, how did you get started investing in microcap stocks? Sure. So um, I run a fund called uh, Bandera Partners, which is um, a kind of a, a concentrated value fund, you know, 15 to 20 positions. Uh, you know, we'll really uh, ten to fifteen positions, um, and and we're very small. Like we, 
are under $200 million. And um, how did I get started? Uh, well, um, I began, like my first job in the hedge fund space was at a distressed debt fund. And, um, and you know, this was in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, ultimately, if you did distressed debt, then you also tended to look at lots of, you know, kind of unlisted equities, distressed equities, uh, post-bankruptcy equities. And um, I do think there's a lot in common but, uh, between buying a distressed bond and buying a microcap uh, stock because, you know, both of those markets are very influenced by the dearth of liquidity. And uh, so it was a pretty easy transition from buying distressed bonds to looking at, uh, at microcap businesses. So for those who don't know, and even though this is a, a, a microcap stock a podcast, <laughs> uh, what, what is a distressed bond? Just, you know, for, out of pure interest, I'm sure some people might want to know what that is. Sure. So just a bond issue that is um, either in default or at a severe risk of default. You know, I mean, often they're defaulted or in bankruptcy. And, um, you know, a lot of the ones the, like that we trafficked in had very small bond issues, like $100 million or $200 million issues. And they tended to be in concentrated hands. And they tended to not trade that much except you know, in kind of a periods of big news, you know, so like it was an over-the-counter market, obviously it's, you know, bond trading. So, you know, so all the, the trading is uh, by appointment and the markets were very thin um, unless there was big news in a name. So it, like it was a lot like you see with microcap stocks where uh, often the price, you know, was really determined by the actions of a few big holders and, um, and very determined by liquidity. And how would you say that it, that you know it prepared you for your your microcap investing strategy was was it because you had to really just dig in and do a lot of more research uh, and and you you saw that as a, a similarity between the asset classes like what what how did it prepare you? Yeah, I mean, well, there are two big similarities, right? Like the first is you know when you buy a position. There's no guarantee that you can get out of it like on any you know a kind of a dependable timetable. So you really need to do thorough work to be sure that you're right on valuation. And then also, I mean, a lot of the trading is just you know kind of hanging around the hoop, um, hoping that some bonds get offered, and being there like to hoover them up if um, like if there's a liquidity event essentially, and like a liquidity event not being a sale or something good, a liquidity event is usually something bad that results in lots of selling pressure, which means that, that you know, that you can buy, you know, buy the bonds at will. And, and would you, what, what would you say would be like the key aspect from that experience that then shaped your, your microcap investing strategy? Like what was the one thing you took away where you're like, okay, I need to well, be doing more of this? I mean, I'm not sure that it, it shaped it. Um, I mean, ultimately, that was my first job in the industry, and like I've learned a lot uh, since then. I, I, I just think uh, very early, it kept me from being afraid of illiquidity, and it kept me from being afraid of leverage. And I think a lot of equity investors, especially at the beginning of their career, um, are um, you know are hyper focused on, on both those things, you know, with good reason, but they aren't like a certain cause for rejection, 
if a company is highly leveraged or if it's a very thin stock. And I think, you know, for lots of microcap investors, that's you know the area that we work in. That's actually a really interesting idea because, um, you know, what one thing that I'd say um, amongst uh, those who I've interviewed on the podcast, they would definitely go against that. They they would agree with you in the sense that, you know, they look for deals that aren't highly levered, no mm-hmm. debt. You know, why why aren't you scared of that? What what, what about that? Just you're able to be like, okay, this is it's not that bad. Well, I mean, I don't obviously love it, dep- it, it, de- it depends yeah. on the deal, of course. I know, but no, I mean, well, I would say two things. I mean, uh, first of all, you know, well, leverage is very much a problem in the small cap world in the sense that if you're not in it, like in a position of power, um, a company, uh, you know, with leverage on the verge of distress um, enables a management team to screw shareholders if they want to. And as you know, and as your listeners know, lots of a micro cap investing is about like avoiding being screwed, um, but at the same time, you know when you uh, as, do dis- as in life, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, when you you know when you do distressed debt investing and distressed investing, you know like you um, intimately learn how uh, debts can be restructured, and particularly you know when I began in the business in in the early two thousands, a lot of the great investments were basically. Uh, you know the great equity investments were basically deleveraging transactions. You know, so you buy a big percentage of a stock that um, happens to be very uh, cheap. And back then, you could have stocks that uh, you know that were cheap. Uh, you know, great businesses that were cheap uh, solely because of the default risk. But then you could recapitalize the company as an equity holder and take that default risk off the table, and then get an, an instant revaluation. And, you know, we did lots of those uh, kinds of uh, transactions at my first job. Um, like the best example I can think of is, you know, we did this, um, a pipe, a private investment in a public equity for the company Denny's. And, you know, we had bought a very big... Are you still currently a shareholder? Just no, to- I do not own Denny's. Okay. So, <laughs> so we bought uh, like a huge percentage of the stock uh, when it was, I think, around you know, 20 or 25 cents a share, uh, the market cap, you know, it was a tiny equity on top of a mountain of debt. And there was, uh, you know, there were rumored to be a prepackaged bankruptcy talks and restructuring talks with the bondholders. And we basically bought a very big block of shares at pennies and then negotiated to infuse the company with capital. And that stock, I mean, um, it ultimately went over, um, um, over twelve dollars uh, per share. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, move, moving forward here, you know, I, I wanted to uh, let uh, my audience know that uh, you um, you also happen to do something, uh, partake in a job that your uh, very famous cousin um, Benjamin Graham did uh, as a as uh-huh. a, as a, uh, a a professor at Columbia Business School and. Uh, Again, uh, that that is a joke. They aren't actually cousins. <laughs> it's a completely different spelling, you know. But um, you know, what what are the what what's that experience like? Or you know, how are you able to translate what you've experienced in your <laughs> life uh, to to your students? Um, yeah, you know, with my class, we really try just to value a new company every week. Um, I really try to to teach the students 
to think about businesses like they're the gas station around the corner. That's the kind of mantra of the class. Like we say that on the first day of class and every week it, it, it comes up at, like at least once. And the thing with value investing, you know, we all know the mantra of if you buy shares in the public company, then you're buying a fractional ownership and you want to buy those at a margin of safety. I mean, um, every value investing uh, a student at Columbia um, understands that in theory, but in practice, they still get you know, seduced by the, you know, the nature of the markets, like into not actually thinking of stocks as, you know, those fractional um, ownerships. And so even though, you know, we all claim that is uh, what we do, uh, so few people actually do it. And so like the real point of my class is to teach the students how to think about business, how to look at at these uh, companies every week and not focus on the stock price or the 52-week high or the 52-week low or a bunch of ratios, you know, just on their own, like return on assets or return on equity. Like you're really trying to, to deconstruct the business, think about, you know, the competitive dynamics and think about, you know, if you could buy the whole thing at this valuation, you know, would you? And given that you can't buy the whole thing, um, you know, are there control issues and governance, you know, problems that you have to, to tend to. So, like, it really, it seems very simple, but really lots of, uh, of uh, value investors uh, uh, still can cut corners at times, like, on that front, and can still think of stocks as, oh, this will bounce back, or, oh, the market, like, is overreacting to this, and the stock is going to pop, like, that kind of stuff. I mean... One thing that I was curious, and you're probably the perfect person to ask this question to because you you, know, you talk with your students a lot, and when it comes to quantitative versus qualitative, you know, you're, sure. um, they walk in thinking, oh, just look at the quants, see what it's doing, ah, eh, this isn't interesting, you know, whereas you're trying to get them to do more, take more of a qualitative approach. You know, why do you think that, that's the case where, you know, even after your class, you're, maybe some students will still just, you know, go by the quantitative approach and, and not take a deeper dive into the qualitative. Is it because it's just more, a lot more work or, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, that, I mean, that's a very good question. And I, and I, like, yeah, to be clear, I don't know the answer, but I think a lot of it is a little bit intellectual uh, laziness and, and, you know, there's a beauty to the idea of all I need to do is just we'll plug this into my spreadsheet and it spits out the valuation. And, and you know, the, like the primary problem that I've had with a lot of my students is it's not that they're not smart or that, or that they don't get it. It's, it's it, you know, that they do, you know, uh, tend to, to have some tunnel vision, uh, to not I think all that that clear, uh, clearly about a lot of these issues and not to, you know, to kind of take a step back and think big picture. And so, like, you know, like you'd be surprised at, at like, at how often we'll look at a company where, where the students have not actually read every 10, you know, page of the 10K and, and thought about, like, the history of the business, you know, of how it got to where it is, that kind of stuff. Like, and all those things inform you about, you know, the true nature of it, you know, how they make money, um, you know, um, how they might or might not have a competitive advantage um, in their lines of business. 
Mm-hmm. So just as a full recap for this first part of the interview, because sure. I, I, I did want to provide, you know, my audience a, a good understanding as to, you know, how you approach microcap investing in, in your strategy. You know, what, what are some of your key criteria that you look for when assessing a, 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 microcap, <laughs> a potential microcap investment? Yeah, I mean, I just like, I look at the business, I try to understand it, you know, like anytime that like you do that, you know, like you're going to have some, um, some questions that you don't know the answer to. And then you, you go out in the world and you try to find the people that know the answer to that question. Um, so like for me, the, the primary criterion is, is it a business that I can completely understand? And then is it a business that there's like some, like some clarity to the earning stream? Like, you know, like um, how confident can you be in a one year projection or a two year projection or a three year projection? And, you know, um, how durable is the competitive, you know, advantage that, like, that protects those earnings? Mm-hmm. And then when you understand those things, you can begin to think about uh, valuation and, and governance and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That is a perfect segue uh, to Dear Chairman, uh, mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about governance. Um, so uh, Jeff, is, as most of you uh, who are listening probably know, is the author of Dear Chairman. Uh, which I had the pleasure of reading, and Jeff, I loved it. Thank you so much for writing writing this book. Um, you know, I, one thing I wanted to ask about uh, at first um, is, you know, what what was your impetus for writing this book? Um, you know, I, I mean, I really didn't have a good reason. Like, I had the idea. I knew that it was a good idea. Um, like, I like to think that I have, you know, a pretty good chops as a writer and then as I tell people just like enough good things uh, happened in the process uh, to push along like a project that honestly you know nine times out of ten I would like um, I would have dropped it I mean you know I, I might tend to have a lot of ideas and I and I tend to not come through with most of them <laughs> and and with this one it was just like enough things happen at the right time and, um, you know, like the key moments were like when I got the Ross Perot letters and the Warren Buffett letter, and then when I got a book agent, and then when I signed a book deal where like they pay you in advance and like you have a, a firm deadline. It was, you know, those events have really made the thing happen where my original plan was just uh, to write the book and hope that, uh, you know, Columbia Business School would publish it. And I think if I, had gone forward with that, you know, idea for the project that I would have never finished. It's, I mean, you know, like I didn't have time to do it in the first place, so I really needed that uh, deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as of why did I have the idea <laughs> in terms of impetus, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in public companies. I like history. Um, you know, like it seemed like a fun thing to do, but, but I don't. Yeah, uh, to me, in lots of ways, it like it. It was a bunch of lucky events that uh, resulted in, like, in a finished book. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there was a lot less of a master plan than you might think. And what's interesting is that it's you know, and this is no comment on how it reads itself, but it seems that, you know, each chapter you like you found a, a really interesting story, and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to dig deeper into this because I want to understand what actually happened. 
And it yeah. just you it so happened that you just found one story after another after another and you're like, wow, there actually happens to be a an odd there's a connection here. This this I'm gonna make it a book. Yeah. No, I mean it was a real fun project and yeah, like when people ask about like, well, who's the target audience? Is it you know, for business school students or and yeah, like it really was about just like a book that I would want to read. And so in a weird way it's, you know, kinda of targeted for like you know, value investing uh, fund managers. Uh, but that was, I mean, like the only way like, you know, like to really get that thing done and to make it happen is that it was extremely fun to do. Mm-hmm. So by like way, I had to write for myself, you know. Right. Now, by the way, for full disclosure, I, I pointed at myself when he said, uh, you know, <laughs> who's the target audience? And uh, it's a... Uh, you know, what has been interesting <laughs> about it is it's not actually a value investing book. It's a book about... Oh. You know corporate governance, but but you know the community that has latched onto it the most by far are the value investors, and it has not gained a lot of traction at all uh, among the governance community. So um, it definitely you know will resonated the most with the people that are like me. Don't worry, I'm sending this interview right to Adam Epstein, uh, who who, <laughs> I, who I did an interview with uh, for episode 22. He uh, I let him know. I said, dude, I'm doing an interview with uh, Jeff and dear chairman. He's like, oh, you got to send that over. So um, <laughs> shout out to Adam. Hello. Um, and uh, that's interesting that you say that because it, it does tie into um, as a value investor when you're talking about qualitative due diligence, you really want to have as much information at your disposal as possible. And it seems that this is a, a good uh, – characterization as to what can happen on yeah. these public company boards that you should pay attention to because it could have a negative effect on an investment that you otherwise might think, oh, this is interesting. So, yeah. you know, right? yeah, and I, I think it's important stuff. And I, and, and I think as an investor, it's important to understand the way that the boardroom works. But yeah, I mean, like at the same time, it, like it was like, how do you take a book and talk about these inherently extremely boring uh, concepts, but do it in, like in a way that it's entertaining. And in a sense, I just got extremely lucky because I had like you know Ross Perot and Ben Graham and 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 Buffett and you know Dan Loeb and, and Carl Icahn, these guys who are inherently extremely entertaining. And I and I got to use their stories like to make it all you know. Um, I wanted to quickly define, you know, what is shareholder activism? You know, for those who don't know, and you know, the the book itself it really talks about the rise of this concept in, mm-hmm. in within the American financial community. So, you know, in for you, what what does this concept mean? You know, what, what yeah. how do you define it? Well, you know, as I talk about it in the book, I mean, ultimately, uh, shareholder activism is, you know, well, nothing fancier than when uh, shareholders in a public, you know, company, um, either begin to kind of exert their rights, you know, to direct, you know, appoint directors, or when they just uh, try to to uh, you know to intervene in the direction of the company with advice or threats, and, you know. So, so um, activism itself is, you know, nothing more than engagement, and and the book is ultimately a less about the evolution of activism and activists, like because 
uh, throughout the like the like the whole book, uh, you know, the activists are just these pretty consistent um, economic actors out to make a buck. The book is a lot about the way uh, the governance has evolved. It's a um, it's a um, it's a lot about the way uh, the passive uh, shareholder base of public uh, companies has evolved, and you know, like like the kind of uh, the key issues uh, with that, um, you know, like it, like it has a lot to do with, um, um, you know, the goals of a public company, if a profits like should be the primary goal, that kind of stuff. And so it's called the rise of shareholder activism, but it's also about, you know, like the reason that that, like that the rise, you know, happened and what it has wrought. Would you say there's a difference in shareholder activism between large caps and micro caps? You know, the book mostly covers it, it covers large caps. So, you know, I guess compared to your experience versus what you research, you know, is there mm-hmm. a difference? Yeah, um, I think there's a pretty big difference. I mean, I think in large caps that you tend to have a concentrated a shareholder base, but but you know, but uh, but not hyper concentrated, and it tends to be a you know a collection of these uh, sophisticated uh, passive investors. Um, in the microcap space, you know, um, often if you're looking at a thirty million dollar company or a fifty million dollar company, you know, there's a couple of key holders, and so um, activism in the big cap space is a lot about persuading you know, the big institutions that hold the voting shares. And so it's a very much a game of persuasion. It's a political game. That's the reason that, that a lot of the kind of the famous activists are, are, you know, like are political animals and they're very smooth and presentable. In the microcap space, it's a lot about a leverage and control of the, of the big blocks of shares. And so you see, you know, more reward for the hyper-aggressive and, um, like and often it's just about convincing a like a very small handful of shareholders, like that you have the right ideas to move the company forward. Mm-hmm. So one one prevailing theme that each activist observed mm-hmm. observed is that the management ownership of the company was not in line with the interests <laughs> of the shareholders. You know, yeah. spe- specifically CEOs owning a very small percentage of the business. You know. Is this something that that still persists as some as a a reason for uh, an activist uh, a potential activist campaign? You know, and you know, e- even if a company is being run well, you know, does that leave the operator vulnerable? Yeah, I mean, it definitely persists. Still, I think that like that everyone that invests in microcaps and listens to your show has uh, come across uh, situations of. A poorly run public company where the CEO and the board does not own lots of shares, and so there's not lots of accountability, um, you know, to them. And like they don't have a lot to lose if they make bad decisions. Um, so I think that it's a very common uh, thing to see that misalignment, you know. But I would go a step uh, further and say even if a CEO or a board of directors owns a lot of shares. Just by virtue of being on the inside, they don't have exactly the same alignments. And, um, you know, like you see lots of, of people in microcap land, you know, will really fixate on is the CEO aligned with me? Is the board of directors aligned with me? And that's important in a broad sense, 
but they're never going to be, you know, perfectly aligned. And if you ever um, hear a like a like a like a like a stock pitch that's like, you know, the alignment is perfect, that's not completely true. It cannot be a hundred percent true. And um, and there are lots of examples where a big shareholder uh, can do something to hurt the other shareholders. Um, you know, even when they're perched in the CEO seat. So, you know, we talked about earlier, like distressed investing. It's like if the company's in distress, and you're a good CEO who owns a lot of shares in the company, it's easy to like to put that thing through bankruptcy and to come out the other side with you know the same le- you know a level of of share ownership, um, you know. But but a lot of times, like when that happens, like the outside you know shareholders uh, don't get the same deal. So there are lots of ways that you can uh, seem aligned on paper. And still get hosed, you know. So like, you always um, have to be careful in just assuming that oh, they own a lot of shares, and so it's a perfect alignment. So you really want to look out for it. From what I gathered from that is, is you want to make sure more more so not so much that the share ownership is aligned with management and shareholders, but more so that whatever the CEO or management is saying that they'd like to accomplish is in line with how you foresee the business going. Would you say that's more of a something to look out for? Yeah. I mean, they're both important, but the main thing is that you have to trust them. I mean, like ultimately a lot of corporate governance is about trust and it's about, um, if you believe that in the long term that they're going to treat you right. And to the extent that you can't, you know, rely on trust, it's great if you can have a big stick in your back pocket, you know, which in the in the microcap, you know, you know, world would come from uh, being um, a big shareholder that could push their way into the boardroom if they had to. Um, so, or just like a, you know, well, being in a company where the structure allows that to happen. Um, you, like it's always a lot harder if you're invested in a microcap where uh, control of the like of the company, like it's already spoken for, right? Like if you're like investing in a controlled um, entity, it's a matter of trust, and you have no leverage uh, to improve things if if uh, the if uh, the trust is broken. Mm-hmm. So um, now now getting to specifically in the book, there there's a quote that you mentioned in there where you were quoting uh, somebody else, and it's uh, it, it states, and I quote. If shareholders continue to be passive, they will continue to shorn like sheep. You know, especially with microcaps, while, <laughs> while, while CEOs are much more accessible, where, where do you draw the line between passive and active? You know, uh, there's, I've heard many times from, C, from microcap CEOs like, you know, gosh, if I took every investor call every minute, I would not be able to run my business. But at the yeah. same time, you want to encourage shareholders to be engaged to find out as much information about, well, if they're a value investor qualitative, to find out as much information about the business as possible. You know, where, where do you draw that line? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the situation. But, I mean, like to back up a little bit, you know, that quote, you know, that was by, uh, from a big institutional investor that had been invested in GM when GM uh, bought, you know, Ross Perot off of their board of directors for three quarters of a billion dollars. And, you know, what they were saying, and, and I mean, that was a big, 
you know, turning point in corporate governance, like when these big passive institutions, uh, you know, saw GM blow a tremendous amount of money to make their board worse. And they realized, like, oh, my God, we um, have created this monster. And they basically, like we're saying, as long as we're completely checked out, you know, these big um, uh, companies are going to continue to take advantage of us. And I think the same thing applies in all levels of the market, like in the microcap space too. And like that doesn't mean that you have to be on the phone every six weeks to the CEO to ask like a, like a bunch of, you know, nerdy questions about your model. It just means that you have to like to hold him accountable with your votes um, or her accountable and that, uh, that you have to be an engaged shareholder to kind of like to help the system, you know, work um, as good as it can. And, but and, yeah, okay. yeah, no, I mean, but just like for me, like in terms of how engaged am I with the companies that, like uh, that we own, um, it very much like depends. It depends on the nature of the company. It depends on, um, you know, yeah. I mean, like there are companies that we basically have not talked to in a couple of years. I think there's some people who are listening who would be like, oh, <laughs> a couple of years. Oh my god. But, uh, <laughs> they might be right. Like you never know. <laughs> like I should get on the phone. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm sorry to whoever CEO is uh, that you're invested in. You know, uh, you're about to be getting a call from Jeff very shortly. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I, I wanted to another thing mm-hmm. that you you highlighted in in going back to chapter four actually, mm-hmm. and and it's this concept of the and I and I'm using air quotes right now is uh, the poison pill. You know, sure. what, what exactly is that? And, you know, in your opinion, do you see this as a key moment in history, in the history of the rise of shareholder activism? Well, you know, uh, the poison uh, pill was like essentially a, like a legal mechanism to, uh, to limit the number of shares in the company that a single shareholder uh, could own. You know, we don't have to get into the details of it, but basically... It puts an ownership cap on uh, the shares, um, and so, um, like, the main goal of that, like, was not to kind of uh, prevent activism or or prevent uh, you know well takeovers, but it was to slow it down. So, lots of takeovers in the early '80s, they were, you know, what you would call these uh, two-tier tenders, where. Um, like the buyer, like would uh, you know would tender for the first fifty-one percent. Um, at their best terms, and the re- like, the remaining forty-nine would get uh, worse terms. So that was a, like a real incentive as a shareholder. Um, if you couldn't block the deal, and you don't like participate in in the first half of the tender, then like you only get the dregs. And like the poison pill was uh, designed, you know, by Marty Lipton as a way to kind of uh, to slow down the you know, what, you know, like what he called the front-loaded tender. So, you know, we're really, in terms of driving big change in, in activism and governance, I think the Ross Perot thing had a bigger impact. Um, I think, like, the kind of, um, the disenchantment of the passive investors, not just from Perot, but, but uh, from the corporate raiders and from Green Mail, had a big impact. And, like, there were some some changes on the regulatory front, like uh, Delaware 203, uh, you know, things like that. But the poison pill, I mean, it's in place at a lot of companies now. 
like it was like in place at a lot in the eighties. Like it doesn't uh, prevent activism or takeovers. It's like it slows down activism, um, which like if you're an activist and you have the right ideas, isn't that much of an impediment. Mm. So, you know, in, in going, actually going back to chapter five, you, you also highlight how institutions started taking more of that active approach with their holdings. You know, mm -hmm. in, in your opinion, how has the awakening of institutional investors impacted uh, public company governance? And is there a fundamental difference than from individual shareholders? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is, you know, this like huge percentage of the of the shareholder base are these big passive institutions, and the fact that they're checked in now, it, like it means there's a lot of accountability in the system. That if you're a director of a of a big public company, like you're thinking about activists, uh, you're thinking about if your shareholders are happy, and you're looking over your shoulder, <laughs> and um, you know, this whole thing has. Um, like it gave rise to this uh, shareholder activism that is, you know, so pervasive uh, today. Uh, like the reason that like these guys like Ackman and and Value Act are in the headlines um, is like it's not that they're buying, you know, uh, controlling stakes in companies and taking control. Like they're, you know, the, you know, they're essentially uh, you know buying a modest stake and they're persuading all the other big shareholders. And the big shareholders are a lot more, you know. Uh, persuaded by activists than they were in the 70s and the 80s and in a way they are you know not only uh, permissive of activism but they kind of have used the system to put themselves in the position of being you know like the arbiters of activism and lots of times like the activists like will be at the company like, involved in the company at their invitation so like they really do play a big role behind the scenes in the activism that you see today Based on the many examples that you gave in the book, you know what what do you think is the best formula for a corporate board, and then also specifically for microcaps? Yeah, well, like for boards, you know, one of the big themes of the book is that, like, there kind of is no formula, and there kind of are no best practices, and you know what you really want are directors that are engaged, that are checked in, like you know that treat their job with you know, you know, with loyalty to the, like the company and the shareholders, and with a lot of care. And you know, to the extent of the governance in this country blows, like a lot of it is just because of that. It's just like the, like the lack of engaged directors. Uh, you know, so that's like the first uh, step. It's not that they all need to own shares or that they all need to, like, you know, have X credentials or Y credentials. It's that like they really need to commit some like some time to the job and, and look it's it's a hard job and, and like like and I sympathize with um, um how hard it is at, like as a director uh, to do anything like in the boardroom to push a company forward like you know the control you know the management uh, controls all the information that like that you receive and and like you don't meet that often like like from chapter um I think it was chapter 4 <coughs> with uh Carla the um the, the over oh her yeah family. the RP share yeah, right yeah, yeah. over her over the 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 family business where yeah. she recognized where you know objectively you looked at at the credentials for everybody that was on the court on the board it it, it was stellar you know yeah. they they seem like they eat it would be fine like that this actually makes up a good board but the problem was that 
there's a bit of uh, too much familialness. Yeah. That. Yeah. Well, that whole chapter, you know, that's a fun chapter. It's about uh, Carla Scherer, who was the daughter of the founder of a company called RP Scherer. And, and um, her father uh, passed away. And the CEO at the time the chapter begins is her husband. And over time, she figures out, you know, well, wait a second. I own all these shares. Um, I'm not sure that my husband is actually, you know, doing the best job for my interest as a shareholder. And she decided, like, ultimately, like, to get on the boardroom and like, eventually to put the company up for sale and to, and, and to force a proxy fight to push out her husband. And that chapter is, like, is a lot of, like, about the board of directors and it's, like, about, like, the way that directors are often, you know, kind of captured by the, uh, the, like, the CEO that put them there in the first place. And that was a very good board on paper, but they were beholden to the CEO. And the people on that board who, who looked the least independent on paper were Carla and the chief operating officer. Um, and it was those two who, who ended up being the dissidents and who ended up, you know, pushing the company to, to sell. And so that was like a real lesson that, you know, you know, credentials are great. Like experience is great. Like all those things can help, but, you know, but ultimately that was like a board of experienced, you know, veteran guys that like were buddy, buddy with the CEO and like, we're happy to like, like to let him have his little fiefdom. You know, it, each each chapter in the book highlights a new era of shareholder activism. You know, in mm-hmm. what what and you you brought this up actually a little bit already. You can kind of I can kind of tell like Ross Perot really had that that chapter with GM really mm-hmm. was very impactful for you. You know, but mm-hmm. but what what would you say, you know, is the era that you learned the most from and had the greatest effect on how you approach investing currently? I think the 1980s were the most fascinating and had the best characters and like the most, you know, what kind of change, you know, both in, in the markets and in, you know, public uh, sentiment, like, like a lot of that happened in the 1980s and the big changes in the engagement of, uh, of these passive investors, you know, that happened in, in the eighties too. So, I, like I really learned a lot from those three chapters, you know, Carla Scherer, Ross Perot, and the Corporate Raiders. Um, in terms of my own investing, um, I came of age in that early 2000s uh, of hedge fund activism, and that was like a very idealism-driven activism. Like you had like lots of loud people with extremely, uh, you know, well, small sticks, you know, fighting these idealistic battles. I mean, like a lot of those. Uh, you know, those Bob Chapman fights, uh, which I write about in the Daniel Loeb chapter, like a lot of those fights were against controlled entities and he prevailed in lots of them. And that was a, like a real era of, of um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, like as a small but active uh, shareholders, you know, what leverage did we actually have, you know, of uh, 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 what can we actually get done? So, you know, that was when I learned to invest. And so like that era had the most impact on me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, how, how do you now see all of this evolving? You know, as, as I just asked, you know, each chapter, 
it seemed like it was the <coughs> next stage in evolution of mm-hmm. shareholder activism. You know, where where do you see it going? How how do you see it evolving? I think that like that over time these like the big like the big passive guys will only get uh, you know will you know uh, bigger, but they're going to be less passive. And like we've already uh, seen some rumblings on that, like uh, BlackRock in particular. Uh, Larry Fink has, um, you know, he writes an annual letter to S and P 500 CEOs, and he he writes a lot about like you know, um, are we ceding uh, too much, uh, you know, power to the hedge funds? And I think, um, like as good as as it has been for them to be the arbiters and to not have to be the uh, you know like the heavies in these uh, disputes. Um, I think, you know, more and more they're going to uh, begin to do their own dirty work. And um, and I think the first places that you will probably see that are in, like, the more, like, um, environmental, you know, corporate, res- like, responsibility, uh, sus- uh, sustainability fronts. But I think that, that you'll see it in other areas, too. So I think that's the next step is for the vanguards and the Black Rocks and the Cowpers of the world, like, to really... Um, you know, to essentially begin to put their own directors on boards. Like, I think that'll ultimately happen. And I'm not saying that they'll just begin to, you know, take control of public companies, but I think they will uh, begin to have a, a bigger say in the composition of public company boards. So, what, what, I ask this to everybody, and I'm, I'd love to get your opinion. You know, what, what is your advice for new microcap investors? Um, my advice to them is, um, well, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a great way to learn, right? It's a great way to learn about investing. It's, it's a great, you know, way to like, to like, to learn, um, well, how, I mean, like you learn a lot about, uh, you know, what, uh, governance, like the first three or four times that, that, like that you get hosed by bad decisions, you know, well, from a public company boardroom. So I guess the, like, the things I would say is I would caution on over-concentration. Um, I think that ultimately if you're early in your career, you know, don't get like, overly seduced by this idea of like when you have a great idea, put half of your net worth in it and that's the real way to make money. Um, I think you're, like, you're going to make mistakes in the early years and, and a lot of them can be real gruesome. So, you know... Like you don't have to be hyper concentrated, and the and the second is if you do get into uh, I'm into activism, the thing that I tell people is it's often good the first time that you do it that it's not like you know your kind of a marquee position. It's not like your like your like the biggest investment that you own and like the one that you have talked about to all your friends because like in a, like in a funny way um, activism and like involves you know, trying to make a deal and compromising and doing all these things, which if you're too emotionally attached, you know, to the idea, or if you're too, you know, invested in winning, like you, like you might not get the best outcome. So for, like for young fund managers, I often think it would like be best if the first time that they did activism, it was not on their top holding, <laughs> like if it was on like, like their second or, or third biggest holding, that might be uh you know, that might be better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and talk to a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's funny. I was gonna say that I was gonna I was gonna recommend your first advice being uh, go buy the book, one, <laughs> and then t- no. please buy my book. <laughs> it's an excellent book. So, it's also very cheap on Amazon right now. It's only like you know twelve dollars. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, I think I paid more than that. Um, oh. <laughs> so I actually let's talk to- about that more. It's very cheap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, real quick follow up to that last one in. If you want to talk about it, you know, I'm going to ask, um, you know, what, can you describe an experience where you, as an activist, you know, what, what was one that was very memorable for you that you learned the most and, uh, you know, you don't have to name the company. In fact, probably don't, but you know, what, what was that, what was that experience? You know, can you, can you tell me about it? The biggest, uh, screwing? Yes. Uh, there's so many, I mean, um, <laughs> um, there's a lot of. Like of experiences that everyone will have, I feel like. Like I feel like everyone will have the investment that like their buddy who is extremely smart will tells them about and it's down fifty like a percent like from where they bought it. And you can't quite get there if you do your own work, but but you figure they're smart and like you cut some corners and then get hosed on it. And so that's one that everyone experiences, and it's a very good learning experience. The second one is the exact same as the first one, but like replace the word buddy with um, high profile, successful fund manager. And like you'll see, you know, some person that like you respect a lot that like will, like will give a very like, like articulate pitch on, you know, it could be like, you know, Richard Pizzina, who, who, who was, extremely good at, at like at these uh, reversion to the mean investments you know pounding the table that uh, Freddie Mac was the best investment that he'd ever seen in his career and I think that was in 2007 you know so that you know what kind of investment and then um, for sure the financial distress being of like a way for management like to kind of improve their position at the expense of shareholders like that's one that you see all the time um, or if not the like the like the management team like the debt holders um, you know financial distress is bad on like on the equity holders for the logical reason because you're the last person in line but it's also bad because it gets easier for you to get hosed and and the closer the, the company gets to bankruptcy the less the board is working in your favor and, and, and the more they begin to work for the debt holders. Um, so that's a classic one. Um, how, about as an, how about as an activist yourself, you know, when, when you've taken part <laughs> in a campaign, like can you describe one that, that you went through maybe even recently and like how, how you even got started doing it yourself? Like, you know, or what was the first time you, you did, you had an activist campaign, you know, what, what, you know, tell me about it. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I don't know if I'll ever, time, I don't know if I'll ever do it in my life, but I'm just curious. You know, I'm, I think the first two, I think the first uh, two boards I was on, uh, 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 you know, we owned a lot of shares, but I was, you know, essentially brought on, or like the beginning of the process of being brought on. Like I was essentially like being used as a pawn by. You know, someone else that had an agenda. Um, so on the first one, um, it it devolved into a fight where you know we submitted us like a like a slate like 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 and that kind of stuff. But it began as we had bought a big stake, and the and the chairman 
you know, wanted to get like another person off, like off the board. And like, and so he, you know, uh, was encouraging of us, you know, well, agitating because he knew that he could use our agitations to get this other guy off the board. Um, so, you know, so the first uh, few times, you know, we were a little bit of pawns and like an, and, and I'm um, in other people's games. And so that was always interesting. And then like you kind of uh, come onto the board and there's already like a little bit of a power divide or a, or a little bit of, um, you know, battle lines essentially. And then with like some later ones, it was, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like the boardroom is a great experience. I think that you learn a lot, like you learn a lot about how decisions get made. Um, it's hard. I mean, I, like, I don't think I'm very good at it. Like, I'm not a good director. Um, you know, I'm not, <laughs> like, it's hard to be a, I'm a, I'm a good director um, as it is, but, you know, but, but dispositionally, I'm, you know, more suited to, like, to finding uh, cheap stocks than, like, to being a, you know, like a real hard ass in the boardroom. Um, but in terms of the big lessons, uh, yeah, but I'd say that you learn your big lessons from investment uh, mistakes. Like when you do activism, you like you learn a lot of little lessons, and they're each important in their own ways. But like I can't think of any like big, you know, you know, key fundamental lessons that I like uh, that I learned through activism. I'm sure there are some. I just can't think of them. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it just seems like a whole lot of politics. Just yeah, politics. Yeah, Politicking nonstop. It really is. It's like you know, factions develop, and uh, I mean, even on on like on a good board that is like is uh, doing a lot. Like you kind of like to get anything done. Like you have to get the like the critical mass of um, of directors in favor of it, and and like you don't do that in the boardroom. Like you do it before the board meetings, um, and so lots of of being on a board is you know, talking to everyone else, like developing a relationship, you know, with them, like a, you know, and for the, like the hostile ones, like you need to develop like, you know, a good working relationship with them. So like, like a lot of getting things uh, done is, um, is on the phone between meetings. What, sorry, I just, the, this inspired a whole line of questions because, sure. um, another, another thing I thought of is when you're, it, as let's not a passive investor, but let's say you're you're not actively engaged with the board, or you're not mm-hmm. you're not doing more activism activism e things. You know, how as an individual investor do you go about learning more about the corporate governance for a company? You know, and and understanding how the board works. Like, what what do you normally do? Um. Well, I mean, like I haven't been that guy in so long. Um. I would say probably your best bet for learning the the dynamics of the boardroom, like if you're you know trying to to figure that out, is probably going to be through you know one of the top two shareholders. Because I think as an individual investor, you're more likely to to get them on the phone in an you know with an you know with an accommodating vibe uh, than the chairman of the board or a board member or the management, you know, just because if you think about it, like if you're an investor, like you're talking like to other investors, like when you call that big shareholder, 
um, like when you're just you know calling the chairman, um, they're not going to be that forth uh, forthcoming about it and. And there's an inherent bias, you would think, too, right? Yeah, and there's just, you know, uh, nothing in it for them to share that information with you. I mean, like a, like a lot of times when you're trying to gather um, information, it's kind of, you know, uh, you know, given uh, to you because there's a reason to give it to you. It's not just, you know, we'll give it to you out of kindness. So if you hear about a dysfunctional board, it's usually because uh, the person who thinks it's dis- uh, dysfunctional has a reason to, to, to tell people that. It's well, usually because they want your vote at some point. Um, so, like, you just, I mean, I say call everyone and, you know, learn what you can and, and try to develop a relationship with just a few of the people involved. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff. So uh, this is my last question. I'll let you go. <laughs> All right. So um, for my audience, where can they go and find more information about you, buy your book, and uh, where can they potentially go see you speak? All right. So if you go to dearchairman.com, there's like a, um, a lot of, um, of events on the events page. Um, I love doing these book events. Like I just did one in Missouri with uh, Brent B. Shore. I'm doing a one in uh, D.C. at Comet Ping Pong with uh, uh, Chris Mayer from 100 Baggers. Um, you know, so like I like to do these events if, um, if you're an organizer like I'm happy to come talk to your hedge fund or your CFA chapter. The book is at its uh, cheapest on Amazon. I guess that's the place to buy it if you're okay with the destruction of our culture. I'm just joking. Um, and to, and um, I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, Jeff underscore Graham, and I have a website, dearchairman.com. And I like I'm, like I'm hoping to like to like to like to write more and and um you know post an occasional you know deal book article or something like that um but besides that i'm just here at the bandera world headquarters in beautiful new york city in beautiful mud and snow filled new york city <laughs> and uh, and they can also see you at the upcoming uh, microcap leadership summit as well right that's right in chicago and then uh I'm talking on uh, Friday, St. Patrick's Day at the MIT Investment Conference on uh, March the 22nd. Um, my kids' uh, spring break, so we're going to Portland, Oregon um, um, and Seattle. But I'm doing a, a book event at the CFA chapter in, in Portland on the 22nd of March. Well, cool, man. Jeff, again, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon and uh, seeing you uh, at a future event. Great, man. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Jeff, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at stocknewsnow.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Mm